One thing I noticed that day, Firat's driving was improving, at least when we were out on the open road, in the city center he was still a disaster. That was how I felt even though the sinuous road itself was turning my stomach upside down, making me feel sick. You're gonna see a very interesting place, it's a sunken city. Sunken cities are especially interesting to explore, but would there still be people living there? Or would the place be abandoned to its terrible destiny, its remains struggling between two worlds, the ethereal atmosphere and the liquid sea? My mind was lost in such speculation when we arrived at the next village, Kaligoy, how is known in Turkish the ancient Lishan city of Semina. Kaligoy is located in the Demir district of Antalya, facing the island of Kekova just off the Mediterranean coast. I looked around and could see a castle on the top of a hill. The Byzantine castle that dominates the village was built in the Middle Ages. Kaligoy means castle village, did you know that? Of course, I didn't. No, but where is Semina? You read the sign. Semina is here, and there. Said Firat, pointing to the island on the other side of the pier we had walked to after leaving the car. Semina, an ancient Lycian city, was divided into two parts, some on an island and the other on the mainland coast opposite. The island was called Kekova, and today is uninhabited. After the Lycian period, the Byzantine had built a castle there to protect the region from pirates. In the 2nd century AD, an earthquake destroyed part of the city, sinking it into the Green Sea. The city was rebuilt, but when the Arab invasion came, the island was abandoned. At the site you can find Lycian tombs, many of them partially submerged, giving the landscape a mystical appearance. There was also a theater to seat 300 people, and the castle, itself. The day was a mix between grey and blue. Firat hired a boat to take us near the island to see part of the sunken city. While waiting for the boat to leave, we sat in a restaurant to have a shy. The tea was a good excuse to have a conversation about the village and the people living there. I made the observation that the place looked like a rustic fishing village, but was probably full of life in the summer. Yes, in summer there are many boats anchored here. It's a world-renowned place for swimming, fishing and diving. Interesting. How much does the community benefit from all this tourism? Summer is a good time, the restaurants are full, as are the hotels, there are many luxury resort hotels around here, and the boats are always coming and going from the port as it's crowded with tourists all wanting to jump into the crystal clear water around the island. But it looks as if the people here are poor. No more than in the other villages of this type. In the winter life is more of a challenge, but they enjoy themselves with what they can make in the summer season. Many go back to homes inland or go to Istanbul or other big cities to find temporary work in the winter. When we embarked, I was surprised that it was such a big boat for just Firat and me as paying passengers. The boat approached the underwater ruins which we could see through the glass installed in the bottom of the hull. Some people might have found it difficult to image the city as it was before the earthquake, now able to see only its remains, but, to me, was this was an exercise in observation and imagination. I could see the amphoras that had been used to store olive oil, wine, or water for the people who lived there, the steps leading up from an unseen origin to a mound on which a now-destroyed house probably once stood. You're imagining the people, aren't you? Firat's voice brought me back from my daydreams. Yes, I was. Can you visualize the city as it was before? Women cooking, children playing, boats coming and going from the shore? I can, but it's not too different from today, is it? Just as Firat said these words the boat turned to enter an improvised harbor where children were jumping happily in the water. Saying something to the boatman as he went, 
I saw Firat disappear into the cabin. A few minutes later he returned wearing swimming shorts. Gonna swim? I guess the water is cold. I want to try. He jumped from the boat into the blue-green water, I heard his gasp as his body touched the cold water. His swim didn't last long, and he retuned to the boat shivering, but insisted I should take some photos of his adventure, and so he jumped into the sea again. Later, when we were driving to our next destination, he told me about his fear of water, and how he normally avoided diving. I always have a sensation that I won't return to the surface. It is like being separated from the world. Alone. I wondered if wasn't, perhaps, his fear of being alone, rather than fear of water, that made Firat so afraid. While returning to the pier in Kalikoi, we passed the Lishan tombs appearing to float in the sea, even though they were made of rock. Here, past rulers, important people, names today unknown to the world, now having their last resting place becoming a tourist attraction. Myself, I was intrigued by them, appreciating the effect the tombs added to that landscape. It was a sunken necropolis from a lost civilization, sharing space with the people living there centuries, millennia after the deaths of their occupants. Our next destination was to the almost unknown and unimportant archaeological site of Kainiai, Cyanii. Leaving the main road, we took a very sinuous unsurfaced secondary road. Firat drove as if we were on a perfect German autobahn, fast and furious, I kept asking him take care as we approached each bend. On an abandoned track like this you never know if there will be a cow just round the corner, or a big hole, or even the end of the road. Why would he never listen to me? In the end, we made it without any harm, but I was shaking when I got out of the car. The view from the top was magnificent. Cyanei or Sine is a Greek name meaning dark blue, the reason this name was given to the city is unknown, as is much of its history. The city is situated atop a steep hill rising to the north of today's village of Yalu. Enclosed on three sides by walls, only the south side is protected by natural barriers that made it seem unnecessary to build a wall there. At the summit there is what can be called the Acropolis, hidden amongst trees and bushes. The Roman baths, consisting of compartments which functions are not yet understood, is on the southeast section of the hill. Further down, a 4th century sarcophagus still lies partially buried, with a relief carved lid while the main part bear inscriptions in Lycian. The best preserved structure in Cyanei is the theater. Located to the west of the Acropolis, and set on a natural slope, it's possible to see the cave arising on small polygonal blocks, and the eleven tiers of seats. The stage is in poor condition, so we are left without a clear indication of how it actually appeared. Between the theater and the Acropolis is the Necropolis, an area containing hundreds of sarcophagi. Simply by standing in this place, you immediately feel as if you have returned to an ancient era, one when people walked in courts, carefully practicing the rituals required to honor their loved ones during burial. Did you like that? Firat looked at me curiously, probably because for almost ten minutes I had not spoken, or asked any questions. Yes, I did. Our next stop was a surprise. We entered the city of Deemer. Our first stop in Deemer was at a church located in the center, and constructed in the name of St. Nicholas. It's known that St. Nicholas, who was born in Patara at the beginning of the 4th century, established a bishopric at Myra, actual Deemer. During his life, he worked hard to improve the religious organization and social welfare of Myra and its surrounding area. Nicholas was a religious man who took a close interest in all the problems of the people around him. It was his character, his care for the poor and especially the orphans, his patronage of laborers, sailors, 
and students that drove him to stand up against injustice in all its forms. The spirit of St. Nicholas is alive today in Santa Claus, Father Christmas, the white-bearded, lovable old man dressed in red who dispenses gifts at Christmas. The idea originated in the happiness St. Nicholas provided to the children of Myra by secretly throwing bags of gold into the houses of the poor residents, those who were otherwise unable to provide dowries so their daughters could marry. There is a story that once, when Myra was suffering a famine as a result of drought, Nicholas, with great difficulty, persuaded the captains of ships carrying wheat from Egypt to Byzantium to stop, on their way, at Myra's port, Andriachi, to lend 100 kilo of wheat to each person in Myra. Yet, when the ships reached Byzantium they found the holds were still overflowing with wheat. The church we visited wasn't the original built to hold the saints' remains, but a 6th century construction on the same site. More than 1,000 years ago, Myra was beside the sea, and therefore frequently subject to attacks from both Arab and Christian forces. In the course of each, the church and tomb of Nicholas were damaged. In 808 AD, the Abbasid navy appeared at Myra and destroyed a tomb they mistook for that of Nicholas. In another incident in 1087, Italian merchants from Bari discovered the saint's tomb and carried off his bones to Italy. Each of those events ended with the church being destroyed. In the 11th century the church was restored and enlarged. The mosaic you can see in it today dates from this time. Nicholas was particularly venerated in Russia, so, in 1862, a Russian prince, had the church restored again. The architect added a bell tower and replaced the original dome with a cross vault totally unsuited to the architecture of the original. Of course, when they found another sarcophagus containing bones, the prince proclaimed that those were the saint's real bones and transported them to St. Petersburg. The sarcophagus can be seen in the church, on the south side, but there is no evidence it is the actual tomb of St. Nicholas. One more observation that Firad and I made there was that St. Claus, the American version, and Father Christmas, the European, show us a old chubby, joyful white man, but Nicholas probably had a darker skin, as do most of the Anatolian people. We left Deemer, heading for ruins of the ancient Myra. According to the Greek geographer, philosopher, and historian, Strabo, Myra was one of the largest cities of the Lycian League. The city was so important that it had the right to three votes. The earliest reference to the city can be found on coins dated from the 3rd century BC. However, if we look amongst the ruins that spread over a wide area of a hill to the east of the plain of the Myron River, Demershai, the tombs and Lycian inscriptions there, lead us to conclude the city is actually much older, going back at least as far as the 5th century BC. I never thought I would describe a necropolis as beautiful, but the tombs carved into the rock covering the hillside were the finest examples of such architecture I have ever seen, with a great variety of different tombs. One of the most notable is a house-type tomb on the lower level next to the theater, carved at the center of its pediment are two running warriors carrying a child. A little higher, in the middle of the group is a tomb decorated with a relief of a family, with the tomb's owner reclining on a couch in the center. There are many others, with reliefs telling stories about war, strength, family and courage. Myra's theater was Roman in style having been built between 200-225 AD. The theater is the largest in the Lycian region, the cava is 11 meters wide, while the diameter of the orchestra is 30 meters. The seating capacity was 11 to 13,000. The double vaulted corridor too. Is still preserved while an inscription on a stall space reads, Place of the Vendor Galasius, the location of an ancient concession stand. 
The theater facade is richly decorated with theatrical masks and mythological scenes. It was at the theater that I gained another moment of silence, while Firat went off to take some photos of the surroundings, I seated myself in the top row and observed people wandering between the columns and statues, touching them and trying to picture how the place was in the second century. I didn't leave Myrna without a good selection of books and souvenirs. I was very tired, but we had another 28 kilometers to go to get to our hotel in Finike. I recall it had a pleasant view over the marina, but all I really wanted was a bed and some rest.